All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 157. Jason Lingren is with me, and we're going to cover from what has been called the greatest generation or those people who went into the supposed World War II era all the way up to 1969. You might even refer to this period of time as the free fall of Western culture and the breaking, successful breaking of the family unit in the 60s. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren and take a look at the 40s through the 60s. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 157. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are going to be taking a stroll and counting the ways through the decades. Uh, Jason will cue us up. We're going to start in the earlier decades and basically show the way of things. Welcome, Jason. Good morning. How goes it, man? It is a beautiful, slightly rainy day here in Covington, Louisiana. How about you? Well, it feels like April is actually March, and a lot of people here have been noticing that over the last couple of years. As a matter of fact, I was still wearing shorts all the way up into November. feels like we're about a month off here. I'm going to build some things here to try to start tracking the sun. I want to know what the real length of a solar year is. I have a feeling it's variable, to be honest with you, but there's only one way to know that for sure. Anyhow, what do we have for the intro? Well, this past weekend, we did the New Orleans premiere, which went very good, in fact. Yeah, quite a few people showed up. I saw um, comments on social media, so it went well. Pretty cool showing. It was great, actually, and I got to speak with several of the really nice folks afterwards, and yeah, I loved it. It was great. I think the real tell is going to come. Um, the film Shoot the Moon has been submitted or is being submitted to a bunch of film festivals. Um, and also, uh, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about where else we've submitted it yet. Um, I think it's going to be a tell how many people are willing to show an alternate point of view, particularly with regard to NASA and moon landings and things. So I think the film festivals will really show us something. Yep, we've entered 20 so far. We're also doing a showing at LSU on May 8th, and I'm just waiting for a time. But that's also going to be a free showing if anybody wants to go to that. But those details are coming. Do you have any people that you know are showing up at LSU, or is you still scheduling it out? Well, Brett is setting that up because he wanted to show it to his students, and some of his peers wanted to check it out as well. So he confirmed with me this morning that the room is available and they've booked it and he's going to get me a time so if anybody's interested they can just email me at shootthemoonmovie at gmail.com if they want to attend the lsu viewing well it's pretty cool that an instructor uh is going to let his students have a shot at that um and by the way for people who don't know brett is the gentleman who did the complete original soundtrack so do we have anything else for the intro or do you want to jump in and get down to brass tacks here i think we are good to go all right man it's all you So this is going to be the first part in a multi-part series called The Decades. In this breakdown, we are going to show how the manipulation of society was built up, decade by decade, utilizing multiple tools of propaganda until we arrive at the mass programming that we have today. So we're going to start uh, in more of the modern era, but there may be a show coming later uh, on research that I'm kind of doing independent of what Jason and I have been doing that, for my money... And believe me, I'm not accepting these dates. The dates I'm about to say, I'm just saying them so we have a point of reference. I don't accept them at all. 
But the accepted date that I'm going to mention here is 1620, and it centers around the Jesuit order and the rush to become the most science-minded. And even to the point where when people like Galileo came on the scene back in the day, the church said, hey, man, you can't do that. It's against scripture. We're going to kill you. We're going to jail you. You can't publish. And then they change their mind and say, well, you just got to stay in your house and you can publish. Less than 100 years later, the Jesuits are teaching exactly what Galileo was attributed with, which should tell us all something. There comes the beginning of the kind of facade, the false reality that has grown up around us. But Jason's going to start us in uh, the 1900s. We're going to start off with a quote from H.G. Wells' book, New World Order, that was first published in January of 1940. The world before 1900 seemed to be drifting steadily towards a tacit but practical unification. One could travel without a passport over the larger part of Europe. The Postal Union delivered one's letters uncensored and safely from Chile to China. Money, based essentially on gold, fluctuated only very slightly, and the sprawling British Empire still maintained a tradition of free trade, equal treatment, and open-handedness to all comers round and about the planet. In the United States, you could go for days and never see a military uniform. Compared with today, that was, upon the surface at any rate, an age of easygoing safety and good humor, particularly for the North Americans and the Europeans. Well, make no mistake, H.G. Wells, who we have identified time and time again as hovering around places like Tavistock, the circles of royalty, chose to name this the New World Order. And what he's pointing out is once upon a time we had a more normal world. And uh, all the way up here in 2019, uh, it is a completely different experience for everyone now, and it's because of what people like to call the New World Order. But go ahead, man, let's keep pushing. The 1939-40 New York World's Fair, which covered 1,216 acres of Flushing Meadows Corona Park, was the second most expensive American World's Fair of all time, exceeded only by St. Louis's Louisiana Purchase Exposition of 1904. Many countries around the world participated in it, and over 44 million people attended its exhibits in two seasons. It was the first exposition to be based on the future, with an opening slogan of Dawn of a New Day, and it allowed all visitors to take a look at the world of tomorrow. According to the official pamphlet, the eyes of the fair are on the future, not in the sense of peering toward the unknown, nor attempting to foretell the events of tomorrow and the shape of things to come, but in the sense of presenting a new and clearer view of today in preparation for tomorrow a view of the forces and ideas that prevail as well as the machines. To its visitors, the fair will say, here are the materials, ideas, and forces at work in our world. These are the tools with which the world of tomorrow must be made. They are all interesting, and much effort has been expended to lay them before you in an interesting way. Familiarity with today is the best preparation for the future. Interestingly enough, World War II would begin within six months of the opening of the World's Fair. Of course it would. Um, chess pieces moving on the board. Um, the World Fairs are tell us a lot if we go back and look at them. A lot of people out there have probably read the book about the Chicago World's Fair, which I believe was 1893. It's all wrapped up in a serial murder at the fair. But the point being here, it's one of the first times we are told that anyone saw electric light 
And not only that, it was commemorating the 400th anniversary of supposed Columbus's arrival, which is complete poppy and cock. There were people here long before Columbus, and everyone knows it. So the idea that he discovered anything is ludicrous. But when we come up to the next World Fairs that follow along, there are agendas, and the biggest corporations in the world are always going to be there. As a matter of fact, in San Diego, uh, my hometown, uh, Balboa Park is put together uh, mainly around what's called an exposition, which was just like a World's Fair. And some of the buildings there were still built by the big four auto manufacturers. So these are the movers and shakers. Basically, what we're talking about here is science is coming to bear on all of us. The early 20th century had a number of inventions come into the world that will take hold and become part of everyday mainstream life in the Western world. With the coming of electricity into the common person's household in the 19th century, there was nothing to stop what was to come in the decades ahead. Right. And, you know, electricity, people don't really think about what electricity provided, but the very next bullet point is going to be a pivot point between the way things used to be in a more sane world and the way things are now in a hyper-material kind of instantaneous informational world where propaganda and everything else is wrapped up in all the communications. So take it away, man. Let's go to Christmas of 1906. On Christmas Eve of 1906, wireless operators on ships off of the coast of New England were caught off guard with a strange experience. What would normally be heard at all times would be Morse code, dots and dashes beeping away in their headsets. A new sound was heard that night, though, that of a voice reading the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke, as well as a violin playing Silent Night. The unknown voice wished them a Merry Christmas, and then the normal Morse code began again. The voice was, in fact, that of Reginald Fessenden, who was an inventor and engineer who had been working on producing voice radios since Marconi's first wireless broadcast across the Atlantic in 1901. After his Christmas experiment, Fessenden continued working to make voice radio a practical reality. In 1907, Lee DeForest invented a new radio tube that was called the Audion. This new tube made transmitting sound modulations considerably more effective and would go on to become part of standard radio equipment. This radio tube was gradually improved upon by others who achieved an increase in both clarity and power. For the next 15 years or so, voice radio was used primarily by engineers and hobbyists who were called hams. This still exists today. Radio still wasn't part of the mainstream household yet, though. The main issue was that the equipment was rather large and required specific technical knowledge to operate. During World War I, while radio was only allowed to be used by the government and the military, substantial efforts were made to improve the technology. This helped many more folks who came back from the war to be quite familiar with the concept. Radio companies began to form to build and sell ready-made machines. In 1920, George Westinghouse, whose company was one of the leading manufacturers of radio equipment, had an idea for making radio into a commercial success. They would offer programming. Programming. So programming enters our world, doesn't it, Jason? And you and I have done many episodes which basically showed that uh, RCA and other of the big early 
mass communication corporations were all militarized. They came out of World War I, the ones that existed at that time, and then it was all weaponized again as we went into World War II and everything was handed over. What most people don't realize is it was never really unweaponized. But all people really need to know here in this kind of matrixy, weird existence that we exist where every number seems to have a hidden agenda is that Marconi's first wireless broadcast across the Atlantic came when? Let's count the ways, 1901. The Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company entered broadcasting with the November 2nd, 1920 sign-on of KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh. They chose that date because it was election day, and the capability of radio was proven when interested Americans could hear the results of the Harding-Cox presidential race before they would be able to read about it in the newspapers. KDKA was a huge hit, inspiring other companies to take up broadcasting. Westinghouse was one of the founding owners of the Radio Corporation of America in 1919, And in 1926, RCA established the National Broadcasting Company, a group of 24 radio stations that made up the first radio network in the United States. Westinghouse initially owned a 20% stake in NBC, and as a result, all of Westinghouse's stations became affiliates of NBC's Blue Network when it was launched on January 1st, 1927. Most of the Blue Network's programming originated at WJZ, which in 1923 had its license moved to New York City and its ownership transferred to RCA. All right, we've mentioned RCA enough in these things, but what what do you even need to understand here? Um, Basically, what's going on here is you're being told that radio was only being allowed to be used by the military in the last bullet point. Then when we come forward a bit into the 20s, 1920s that is, I guess I need to clarify that now, Um, you're looking at the use of the radio brought to bear on Election Day. How many episodes have we done that have showed that people vote for nothing? Where do you go when you vote? You go to a poll. You're being polled. The Electoral College seats presidents. Always has, probably always will. It's a rigged system. The state of Rhode Island bailed out when they set up the Electoral College, shouting as they walked out the door that there was a back door to power being put in place so that the same people who always held power, and yet here we have radio on Election Day broadcasting what the voters think they are doing to seat a president. It's not true. And as we move into it, the Radio Corporation of America is founded when? 1919. Count the ways. And of course, RCA has been covered in so many of our episodes Um People can go back and look at the weaponization of RCA, which started early, uh, was renewed as we went into World War II, and was never really undone as far as we can tell after World War II. In four years, there were 600 commercial stations around the country. To keep up with the cost of improving equipment and paying for performers, stations turned, of course, to advertisers. In August of 1922, the first radio ad for a real estate developer was aired in New York City. Networks of local stations developed to share programming and became big business. The quickly developing industry made the airwaves so jammed and chaotic that the Federal Radio Commission was established in 1927 to assign frequencies to broadcasters. The entry of mass communication into American homes meant, among other things, the development of a mass culture. The same songs were heard across the country, news could travel considerably faster than by print, and new celebrity heroes like Charles Lindbergh or Joe Lewis were a lot more accessible to all who wanted to tune in. 
1929, FM radio became available, although AM was the primary for many years. The development of the solid-state transistor in the late 1940s paved the way for the transistor radio's appearance in 1952. Stereophonic sound and personal stereos would continue radio's technological evolution on up to today. So 1929, we get FM or frequency modulation. Uh, in the Marine Corps and radio school, they teach you that the word FM stands for effing magic because no one quite understands how it works, or at least that's what they teach in the Marine Corps. Um, and again, Steely Dan echoes um, this idea in their song No Static at All later, which is talking about FM radio. But really what we're looking at here in the early 20s is where everything changes. Before then, depending on where you lived, was the culture that you lived in. After then, uh, it started to become homogenized. After all, one of the things Jason just said is the development of mass culture. The same songs were heard across the country simultaneously. Look what's gone on now. Almost everything that gets referenced in modern culture is referencing some movie that everyone has seen or something like this. It's the complete homogenization of culture, and when you throw programming into that, it's a pretty powerful tool. Radio was the first major invention to offer an immediacy that was never present before in the offering of programming. This had a permanent effect on Western culture, and this desire and demand for immediacy is still felt today, with the YouTube generation hardly being able to wait 30 seconds before wanting to click on to the next thing of possible interest. That's right. Radio started it. But who can forget the very first song by the Buggles put out on MTV? I actually saw it as it aired when it aired. And that was Video Killed, the radio star. Um, we've done nothing but progress from this time. The programming has progressed. The availability and the reach of it all, which is pretty much worldwide now, has done nothing but progress. And you can logically work out. You know, if you think of something like corporations, which is a good way, a good thing to talk about in an episode like this, if you have 10 corporations that are all competing against everything, what can you logically work out is going to be the result of that 20 years later or something? There's going to be fewer corporations because some are going to have lost, some are going to have been bought, and there is this push to one central entity. And I would suggest to you that back in these days, that's kind of what we were looking at already. It just wasn't obvious. Radio was pretty much owned and operated by very few people, and it ended up getting governed by the so-called American government at the time. Um, but it was not every man's tool, was it? No, no, it wasn't. This was another top-down kind of thing, as we saw with a major corporation in Westinghouse being one of the initial investors and pushers of this medium. As is all entertainment, I would point out, or, or what has become of entertainment, you could say the same thing about it. A second method of delivering programming was film. This also began in the late 19th century, but rapidly became a mainstream norm throughout the early 20th century. By 1912, major motion picture companies had set up production near or in Los Angeles, California. The weather was beautiful most of the time, and there was easy access to a variety of settings to shoot. Los Angeles would go on to become the capital of the film industry in the United States. The mountains, plains, and low land prices that were there at the time at least, soon made an area of Los Angeles known as Hollywood a good place to establish film studios. And now we have the nightmare as it exists today, pumping out piece after piece of agenda-laced programming. 
Oh, the city of lost angels, as it has been called, probably accurately, um, Hollywood. And, you know, we've covered in other episodes as well that Hollywood, the wood, the actual tree of Hollywood, was the wood used to make magic wands. But let's kind of demonstrate what Hollywood is about in a very simplistic way. Jason stated that by 1912, the major motion picture companies had set up business. This is a constant obfuscation of the actual dates of things. You see it all over. I had to dig to get back to what I already knew was true. According to Google, Hollywood was founded in Count the Ways, 1911. The first motion picture studio was built in 1919, Count the Ways, in nearby Edendale, just east of Hollywood, by Selig Polyscope Company, and was the first one built in Hollywood and was founded by filmmaker David Horsley, general manager, and his general manager, Al Christie, in 1911, in the old building on the southeast corner of Sunset Boulevard and Gower Street. Now, if we want to look at another iconic thing from Hollywood, we can't ignore the sign, can we? Here's a little bit um, about the sign. Well, I'm going to skip the sign. Nobody gives a damn about it. Let's go straight to the Walk of Fame where all the stars are, including our president. Our president is an entertainer and an actor. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which, by the way, they like to destroy from time to time to cause strife for the people that support him and the people that don't. So they can always continue the continuous battle between human beings who don't know any better. The famous Hollywood Walk of Fame, where the names of celebrities are embedded in the sidewalk along Hollywood Boulevard, was built in, let's count the ways, 1956. Now, I did some digging because I had a hunch, and I was right. <clears throat> Get this, and if this doesn't tell you all you need to know, I don't know what I can say that will inform you. The monuments for the Apollo 11 mission to the moon are uniquely shaped. Four identical circular moons, each bearing the names of the three astronauts, Neil A. Armstrong, Edwin E. Aldrin Jr., and Michael Collins. The date of the first moon landing, 7-20-69, and the word Apollo XI, or Apollo 11, are set on each of the four corners of the intersections of Hollywood and Vine. The moons are silver and gray terrazzo circles. For people who don't know, terrazzo is a place in Italy, of course, and it's like glass chips and and just things like that to make the terrazzo circles rimmed in brass on a square pink terrazzo background with a television emblem inlaid on the top of each circle. So what I'm describing here is the Apollo 11 stars, basically. They're actually moons on the Walk of Fame, but get this. The walk's four round moon landing monuments at the corner of Hollywood and Vine, for example, officially recognize the Apollo 11 astronauts, get this, for contributions to the television industry. Johnny Grant acknowledged in 2005 that classifying that it was classified at the time as the first moon landing was television entertainment because they have to fit criteria. They have these little rules of how you get a star. So what they did was they honestly admitted that the moon landing was television entertainment. There's all that. I could go on about the Oscars, but I have a feeling no one gives a damn. <laughs> and we have one more very important invention to cover. Can you guess what it is? Uh, television, maybe? Television! Tell lies vision. <laughs> The original idea behind television was radio with pictures. How cute that is. <laughs> the invention of television as we know it today was actually the combination of work done by numerous individuals, 
beginning in the late 19th century and moving on into the early 20th century. The delivery method of television becomes known as terrestrial television, which is a type of television broadcasting in which the television signal is transmitted by radio waves from the terrestrial or Earth-based transmitter of a television station to a TV receiver that has an antenna. The term terrestrial is more common in Europe and Latin America, while in the United States it is called broadcast or over-the-air television. The term terrestrial is used to distinguish this type from the newer technologies of satellite television, which is direct broadcast satellite or DBS television, in which the television signal is transmitted to the receiver from an overhead satellite, and cable television, in which the signal is carried to the receiver through a cable. It's funny, you don't hear the term terrestrial very much, but it's true, isn't it? There are no satellites in space, so anything else that's over the air is still nonetheless terrestrial in one way, shape, or form. But I'd have to mention here, if anyone was to walk up to you and ask you today, where's TV going? You know, 20 years from now, where's things like TV going to be and film? Well, I would suggest to you that the film that recently came out, Ready Player One, is doing a pretty good job of showing where the powers that be want it to go. It's kind of a virtual reality world that we're headed towards, but go ahead, let's get back to terrestrial TV. I've actually given that quite a bit of thought, and I see a complete integration of everything coming. It's just going to be one unified system coming from uh, probably very few sources at the top that you would plug into wherever you want, how often you want to. It's going to be a royal drag. Everything you do is going to be logged. Everything you want access to, it's going to be a thing. Um, just like all the other things you hate, like insurance and all the stupid things we have to do in this lifetime. Uh, because I guess we all need a nanny. Uh, none of us are grown up enough to conduct ourselves, so we have all these ridiculous rules that basically are just designed to control us. That's where the future of VR is going. You know, at one point in the film, one of the guys, one of the big corporations that's vying for control of the virtual reality world points out that, hey, man, we've done tests and we can fill the viewer's field of view with 80% of ads before they start to have seizures. That's where this is all headed. <laughs> 80%. Yep, we can fill it 80% your field of view with ads blinking and flashing before we cause someone to have seizures. Um, that is absolutely where this is going because nothing good ever comes of these things because regular people and people with the concerns of an average man or woman have no part at this point in shaping what becomes of these things. What actually shapes it is a thing called capitalism, which a lot of people like to defend. But the point I would make is capitalism has gone crazy. It no longer gives a damn about a living man or a living woman or a living anything. What it cares about is profit and control. And that is why all corporations will continue on until there is one because of capitalism. And look at China right now. I kind of feel sorry for those people. They had a rough go of it before capitalism came there. Now look what's going on. There was a page I was looking at for this research, and even though it was supposed to be history-based, it had no less than a dozen ads blinking, jumping up, videos starting. It was the most distracting, annoying thing ever. I got what I needed and clicked off. But good God, what makes these people think that all of these ads makes their website desirable to look at? Because I couldn't get off it quick enough once I got what I wanted out of it. Well, they don't give a damn because the person who's running the ad isn't really aware of what you're aware of. All they're aware of is the stats they get back saying that so many eyes saw their, their ad. But do this. Anyone listening, go look up the runtime 
of the half hour, maybe it was an hour show sometimes, of something early, like I Love Lucy. Look at the runtime. And from the runtime, you can deduce how many minutes of ads were in 30 minutes. Um, Brady Bunch, even, up into the, the 70s, uh, much more runtime. And then look where we've come now, where it's not uncommon to come close to 10 minutes of advertisement on television in between breaks, where a half an hour show is actually less than 20 minutes um, because you're getting two five-minute breaks in a 30-minute period. It's even worse depending where you go to view. This this is the proven creep of what's going on here. Um, the entertainment is programming you to be sure, but the money and the capitalism around it all, um, that's what drives it. And so, you know, how long is it going to be before you get five minutes of programming in a 30 30 minute session and the rest of it is advertisement? I mean, it, that's kind of the way it's been heading, but I think it's going to be a lot worse when we get to virtual reality. If I remember correctly, it's, or at least it used to be, I guess I should be very specific here because I don't watch television much anymore. A 30 minute program is actually only about 22 minutes, and a 60 minute program is only about 44 minutes. But from what period are you saying currently? That's what I'm saying. I'm pretty sure that's close to what it is now, but I'm guessing that uh, they've probably knocked those times down a little more to squeeze in more advertising. Well, I think typically now a half hour program is actually the actual show is under 20 minutes. I would have to look it up to be certain. I looked at this a while ago, but back in the days of, say, the Brady Bunch, if I'm not mistaken, and I did not look this up before we came on the air, so I'm pulling from memory here, I think 25 minutes was the runtime. So there were two, two and a half minute breaks or something like that, if I remember correctly. Have you noticed that there also used to be more episodes in a season? Yeah, that, you know, that's all very interesting. If you go look at the history of television programming, what, what part of the year the new programs came out, how, what a season was at this time or that time, uh, it's all very telling. Well, the reason why I bring it up is while I was moving, I was watching the Buck Rogers season one from 1979 that, of course, I haven't seen since I was a child. And I just left it on in the background, kind of giggling at the fact that I still remembered a lot of it, funny enough. But there were 24 episodes in that season of a science fiction program that obviously had to have a sizable budget to be what it was at the time. And no wonder why it seems like there was a lot of it in my mind as a child, because there actually was a lot of it compared to what they do today. How's it go? Beady, beady, beat. Why'd you watch that, Buck? Um, and that's, it's a <laughs> good, you know, blank. yeah, well, it's a good, it's a good landmark of what a lot of these programs have been for, because the Buck Rogers you're referring to is a throwback to an earlier Buck Rogers. The first Buck Rogers is way, way back before black and white, probably even precedes broadcast, if I remember correctly, but it goes way back. And what's going on with the programming there? Well, the programming there is to convince you that space is just exactly like you're going to be told it is, which it is not from my point of view. Um, so even if you dig in to see what it, what is actually being delivered to you, um, it, it's like we say all the time, one of the biggest shifts in mental consciousness about where human beings exist has to be 1966 with the coming of Star Trek um, to show you this is what space looks like. This is what a planet looks like in space. You know what? This is what a spaceship orbiting a planet looks like. And it's all just programming. It's what it is, man. And I always thought it was funny that the Enterprise is a flying saucer with just some extra parts stuck on. <laughs> well, I guess if you're going to make stuff up, you can do anything you want. <laughs> <laughs>
Terrestrial television was the first technology used for television broadcasting, the first public one of which is thought to have been broadcast from Schenectady, New York, in January of 1928. The BBC began broadcasting in 1929, and by 1930, many radio stations began to have regular schedules of early experimental television programs. These early experimental systems had poor picture quality and failed to initially attract the public. Television technology kept progressing, of course, and finally became widespread after World War II. The television broadcasting business followed the model of radio networks, with local television stations in cities and towns affiliated with television networks, either commercial, which would be in the United States, or government-controlled in Europe, which would provide the content. Television broadcasts were in black and white until the transition to color television in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, if you lived in a lower middle class family like I did, we didn't see color TV till well into the 80s. But um, look at the dates here, Jason. You're, you're stating, you know, uh, the first public broadcast, January of 1928, Count the Ways. BBC begins broadcasting in 1929, Count the Ways. You, you begin to wonder that if modern entertainment and the reach of things like television and radio hadn't come to be, if we'd see this kind of matrixy number game that goes on in our world. I mean, I guess we would, but probably not to the same degree that we see now. After all, the numbers we're referencing here were brought to you basically via theater, weren't they? But there's an episode we did quite a while back that said one of the first television drama broadcasts was out of England by the BBC in an old Victorian manner or something like that. I don't remember the year, but I absolutely remember the date. It was the Queen something was the name of the broadcast or something like that. It was on September 11, and that was the first cited as the first drama ever broadcast. So there's all that. The first few decades of the 20th century saw all these new technological developments all coming to become part of everyday life in Western households. The people who were growing up in these decades saw things change from cobblestone streets with horse-drawn carriages that were the norm, to paved roads with automobiles everywhere to be seen, film theaters in every town, radio stations broadcasting many hours of the day, and eventually a television in every home. The first decade we're going to take a closer look at is the 1940s, when all of these mediums are in near or full function. So this is a, a heck of a thing. You know, you're citing the 40s as such a pivotal time, and it really was, and I know it to be true, because when my father was dying in the early 2000s, uh, we ended up driving up from southern New England to see the Norman Rockwell Museum. And when we came out of that place, it was almost like the light had gone out of his eye. Um, he was done. He wasn't going to fight anymore. Uh, he had seen his childhood and all those Norman Rockwells and what he looked around when when he looked at now, um, he didn't want to do with any of it. And it, it kind of illustrates, for those who are old enough to remember, the amount of freedom, the amount of kind of normalcy that used to exist at some level is no longer with us. But there's all that. It was all person to person. This is the big thing I've taken away from looking at all of this. People cared more about each other. You spoke with your neighbors. You got together. You did things. You, you had close friends. Things like that. You, families were tighter. All of that. That's what we've lost. Well, the, the 60s absolutely decimated the family unit. We've done more than enough to demonstrate that. But it even goes further from my point of view because even the things like a bed – or a kitchen table, they were quality 
the craftsmen and the craftswomen who made things back then made quality things, even all the way up into the 90s. You know, my first telescope, that 8-inch robotic scope that accidentally filmed the 2012 lunar wave, it still runs like a champion. Good American steel and know-how built into that all the way up into the 90s, where now you try to go get a Mead scope and it's crap. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone to buy one of those scopes, and it used to be my favorite. It's just, it's emblematic of what's happened to us. Um, part of it is the programming, part of it is the capitalism, part of it is our money system. And, you know, you cited early on, H.G. Wells said, everything used to be based in gold and the value hardly fluctuated. Well, we're a million miles from there now, ain't we? Um, and we're, we're creeping towards crypto, um, which is going to be one hell of a sad day for human beings in this world. But anyhow, go ahead, man. You want to see how things used to be made? Go buy something from the Amish. Yeah, exactly. You, you buy a chair from the Amish, you're going to be handing that to your great-grandchildren. Uh, you go to Walmart for something, that's getting thrown away next week. Hundreds of dollars for particle board. That's what I've been seeing when I was looking for furniture for my new place. Anyway... The term The Greatest Generation comes from the title of a 1998 book by American journalist Tom Brokaw. In his book, Tom Brokaw profiled American members of this generation who came of age during the time of the Great Depression and would go on to fight in World War II, as well as those who contributed to the war effort on the home front. Brokaw wrote that these men and women fought not for fame or recognition, but because it was the right thing to do. This cohort is also referred to as the World War II generation. As previously mentioned, this generation experienced much of their youth during rapid technological innovation and amidst growing levels of worldwide income equality and a soaring economy. After the stock market crash of 1929, this generation experienced profound economic and social turmoil and would eventually fight in World War II or contribute their labor to the war effort. This would be the last decade of Western living that would really not be 100% in the grips of technological programming. Let's take it a step further, Jason. Uh, the children of the greatest generation are basically going to be born in the late 40s and 50s. And in the 60s is when the family unit is utterly destroyed. There's one thing. But another thing is that moniker from Tom, if it's not Brokaw, don't fix it, the greatest generation. Um, we have pointed time and again during our Tavistock episodes that documents that weren't supposed to be seen by the general public state that when Tavistock started its social programming, the greatest generation would be the most difficult to program. And why, you might ask? It's because they hadn't been raised on television. So look how quickly the children of the greatest generations are born in the 40s and the 50s. They're old enough to party by the time the 60s get here. And already they have been raised on television and the drug culture and everything else that decimates the family unit in America comes to bear. And it's not just America. I just say that because it's what I'm familiar with. I'm sure any number of listeners all over Europe or anywhere else could tell a similar tale. But truly, truly, by the time we get past World War II, uh, nothing's ever going to be the same. And normalcy will slip away decade by decade. And we have a milestone that we're going to discuss next that I'm sure Crow will have a lot to say about. Citizen Kane is a 1941 American mystery drama film by Orson Welles, its producer, co-screenwriter, director, and star. The picture was Welles' first feature film. It is considered by many critics, filmmakers, and fans to be the greatest film ever made. 
The quasi-biographical film examines the life and legacy of Charles Foster Kane, played by Wells, a character based in part upon the American newspaper magnates William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, Chicago tycoons Samuel Insull and Harold McCormick, and aspects of the screenwriter's own lives. Upon its release, Hearst prohibited mention of the film in any of his newspapers. Kane's career in the publishing world is born of idealistic social service, but gradually evolves into a ruthless pursuit of power. Narrated principally through flashbacks, the story is told through the research of a newsreel reporter seeking to solve the mystery of the newspaper magnate's dying word, Rosebud. After the Broadway successes of Wells' Mercury Theater and the controversial 1938 radio broadcast The War of the Worlds on the Mercury Theater on the air, Wells was courted by Hollywood. He signed a contract with RKO Pictures in 1939. Unusually for an untried director, he was given the freedom to develop his own story, to use his own cast and crew, and to have final cut privilege. Following two abortive attempts to get a project off the ground, he wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane, collaborating on the effort with Herman Mankiewicz. Principal photography took place in 1940, and the film received its American release in 1941. Boy, this guy either had a blessed life or he truly was the offspring of Kane. Let me take this backwards. First of all, RKO Pictures. How many people can just recall easily uh, the world? The, the round world with a radio tower broadcasting from the top. That's the RKO. Been around forever, putting that image in your mind. And if you take R RKO, you can count the ways, but you can count the ways frontwards and backwards with RKO. And again, of course, the Mercury Theater, Mercury the Messenger, the Misuse of Alchemy, um, the Rosebud Idea, War of the Worlds. And I would invite anyone to go back and look at the supposed accounts of War of the Worlds, which incidentally Hollywood has made into movies many times since. Um, they're claiming that he jacked up the, the entirety of the country with panic, and all that happened was he was pulled in in front of Congress or something and had his hand slapped, if any of that's to be believed. But there's an interesting dichotomy going on with Citizen Kane here. If we set aside that it's his first picture and somehow he not only writes, produces, stars, and does everything, all of a sudden he can do whatever he wants in the world, um, it is always voted the best film of all time. The dichotomy that I'm referring to is William Randolph Hearst, who is a newspaper man. And in the movie, they tell you the truth. They show you that he owns papers and he makes up a war that's not happening. And somebody from the country who they claim the war is happening calls the paper and says, there's no war here. And he says, what the hell do you mean? The paper said there's a war. There's a war. Um, it shows you actually, truthfully, what happened in the newspaper industry. And not only that, it shows that they buy up paper after influential paper so that one owner early on in the 40s owned all the big papers in the country. In other words, if they wanted to remove a candidate for this, that, or the other thing, all they had to do was say they had an affair. And it looks to me like what may this might have been was Hollywood pushing back against the newspapers showing, look, we got just as much power as you do. We're going to loosely base this on Hearst, who's going to get pissed off about it. These are hard things to know, but at the end of this movie is the big tell. They're all worried with whatever the hell Rosebud means. And here's a spoiler alert. Of course, it's what was written on his childhood sled. Um, Rosebud, it was the thing he loved. It represented freedom in his childhood and all these things. But as he's dying in the movie, and he says the cliche Rosebud words, 
he drops a snow globe out of his hand that was given to him by, I think, his girlfriend. Um, but what very few people miss about that scene is the snow that's flying around in flame is not in the snow globe. It's covering the whole frame. In other words, Mr. Foster Kane is living in a snow globe. It's a huge tell. But anyhow, Jason. Fashion and colors in the 1940s is a mixed bag. The very beginning of the decade had the three-piece suits of the 1930s holding over for men. For women, in spring and summer, they gravitated towards saturated pastels such as peach, rose pink, lilac, sunny yellow, sky blue, and sea green. Add to that year-round colors of red, navy, emerald green, orange, and mustard. Things changed with the war efforts, however, as rationing of fabrics came to be a norm. Other than the flamboyant zoot suits worn by certain young urban types, wartime pride of fashion on a budget became the norm. Men's suits were still normal, of course, but the three-piece suit gave way to the two-piece suit since less fabric was needed. Women's dresses also became a bit simpler with less prints available to make them from. Still, things looked quite stylish, all things considered. The average person took pride in their appearance, a concept that has certainly become a lot rarer today. After the war, however, fashions took an upswing with colors and designs, with there no longer being a need for much of the available resources going to military needs. Wartime clothing influenced men's fashion design after the war by copying or modifying uniforms into civilian clothes. Trench coats, bomber jackets, knit undershirts, pea coats, chino pants, and aviator glasses all have roots in World War II military clothing. With so much military surplus available after the war, civilians would buy and wear military clothing for several more years. With so much military surplus available after the war, returning soldiers and civilians alike would buy and wear military clothing for several more years. Casualness also started making its way into fashion, slowly doing away with the need for a suit to be worn at all times. This brought in more casual sport attire, which would continue on into the 1950s. So I'm so glad you covered fashion here because fashion is a huge, huge tell for social programming. Um, We could use the 80s as a good example. Look at those bizarre, bright, just off the charts colors that queued up the biggest party that's ever gone on in my lifetime called the 1980s. But if you go back to the 40s where Jason started out here, you can see that even back here, the summer colors of fashion we're basically referencing the idea of seasons, which, by the way, is still carried on in Japan quite a bit. But anyone who wants to look up where the roots of fashion come from and the names like uh, De La Renta and all these, they're, they're old family names. They're old bloodlines. It's what they are. So you can absolutely tie social programming to the clothes people are wearing in any given generation. And another thing Jason mentioned here was the zoot suits. And just to tie the programming to that, who hasn't heard of the zoot suits riot, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that they pointed out that only certain kinds of people would wear the zoot suit because it required a lot of cloth and it was extremely flamboyant, which was almost a rebellious street kind of thing in comparison to the we-need-to-be-conservative attitude of the rest of societal norm. By the time you get to the 60s, you can absolutely one-to-one 
tie fashion with what's going on in the world. By the time the miniskirt comes and the burning of bras and the hypersexualization and the introduction of the birth control pill and drugs galore and mind-altering drugs galore, which will decimate successfully the family unit in the world of the Western world, um, you can absolutely tie fashion one-to-one, not only the colors, but the styles and all the rest of it. And not only that, it, while I'm at it, um, who, who can forget the nonsensical supposed nuclear bombing of the Bikini Atoll? Hint, hint, look into these things, man. Yes, I absolutely brought fashion into the reading here because it's a direct indicator of what society is like at the time. And as we go through the decades, you will see things in fashion reflecting what's really going on. Well, even now, the fashion has gone beyond what we wear. Um, Look at tattoos as a good example. Uh, When I was young in the 80s, if you had tattoos and you wanted a good job, you needed to be able to cover them up with a long sleeve shirt or something like that. Uh, We've come a long way since then, but it's not just tattoos. What about all the tribal piercings uh, with the really large ear studs or plugs or whatever they're properly called? Uh, Body modification. When we go out into the world today, nobody blinks twice at any of these things. I guess unless you're Jewish. From what I understand, um, if you have tattoos or body modification, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery if you're Jewish, I have been told. I don't know for sure that's true, but that's what I've been told. I understand that to be true, but again, don't quote us. Look that up for yourself. (laughs) I'm sure someone listening will know. In the decade of the 1940s, the phenomenon of television started, was put on hold, then started up again, taking off on the path that led it to what we have today. During this time, the new medium turned on the lives of both urban and rural residents, connecting them to the rest of the world in a way that was even greater than newspapers or radio ever could. The first practical TV sets were demonstrated and sold to the public at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. The sets were very expensive, and New York City had the only broadcast station. When World War II started, all commercial production of television equipment was banned. Production of the cathode ray tubes that produced the pictures was redirected to radar and other high-tech war uses. You know, it's funny, I'll jump forward a little bit. Uh, Where I was in the East County of San Diego growing up, which was kind of out in the sticks, um, cable television finally arrives in the 80s or something, and I can still hear my father's words echoing. I'm not getting those damn underground cables. At the time, it didn't make much sense to me, but I get it in spades now, man. After the war, television was something few had heard of. That changed quickly. In 1945, a poll asked Americans, do you know what television is? Most (laughs) didn't. But four years later, most Americans had heard of television and wanted one. According to one survey in 1950, before they got a TV, people listened to radio, an average of nearly five hours a day. Within nine months after they bought a TV, they listened to radio, but only for two hours a day. They watched TV for five hours a day. (laughs) Mission accomplished. Already. (laughs) In 1947, President Harry Truman's State of the Union Address and the Baseball World Series were televised. A year later, CBS and NBC networks started 15-minute nightly newscasts. In the late 1940s, there were 98 commercial television stations in 50 large cities. By 1949, pricing on television sets were going down, making them a lot more affordable to many, and so Americans were buying 100,000 sets every week, according to the stats that I found. Holy smokes. 
entrepreneurs hurried to build television stations to reach every part of the country. Even if there was only one snowy black and white station on the air, rural and urban families alike wanted that TV set in their homes. It was a common practice that the first family in the neighborhood to get a TV set would invite their friends and neighbors to come over and watch with them. Televisions of the time were heavy wooden cabinets that housed the primitive, by today's standards, electronics, with no more than a 10 to 15 inch screen at most for viewing. So this, the, the idea you just expressed goes on for a while. When the first Planet of the Apes movie, what is that? Is that the late 60s, Jason? Must 69, I believe. Yeah, something like that. I think it's in the late 60s. When that came out, we actually drove 30 minutes to a friend's house who had a big color TV to go view that. So that was still going on. But let's take a look at this. In 47, Truman's State of the Union goes out along with the the World Series. So entertainment is firmly established uh, as going out, big events in entertainment. But a year later, CBS and NBC networks start 15-minute nightly newscasts. Look where we are now. It's 24-7. The, the nonsense news. Um, can you imagine if it was only 15 minutes a day, what a better world we'd live in? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Planet of the Apes was 1968. Yeah, I was, I was still pretty young, and I remember it was like it had been so hyped up, everyone wanted to see it. Who knew the joke was on us? We were the apes. In 1945, science fiction writer, science writer, and futurist Arthur C. Clarke conceives the idea of the communication satellite, a space-based signal mirror that can bounce radio waves from one side of the Earth to the other. Damn, I gotta ask, Jason, is there any important thing that's ever been invented in our world that wasn't created by a science fiction writer to include certain religions? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, man, it's like... I mean, what? He's a science fiction writer. What the hell does he have to to know or do about space or anything else? But actually, he's contributed quite a bit to the modern dialectic. And of course, who can forget his involvement in 2001, which was the absolute, and from my point of view, putting in the technology in place for the moon landings and priming everybody's mind once again in one of the best movies made to date for realism what space is supposed to look like. But anyhow, Jason, you want to add anything in before I wrap up hour one of 157? We are looking at Seattle as being the next place to show the film in an outside of Louisiana kind of way, but details to come, but we are definitely working on that. I've had folks from the Seattle area and Oregon ask me about doing a show. So basically what's going on here is people are kind of sponsoring. They're getting enough people together and making it possible for Jason to show up and come to a screening in their area. Um, We've seen emails from everywhere. It looks like Seattle will be one of the first. There's a few more that are being considered. Anything else, Jason? In hour two, we're going to start getting into the 1950s and finish this part one section with the insanity that was the 1960s and the massive divide that we still feel today that was created during that decade. Yeah, if nuclear weapons were real, it was dropped in the 1960s as far as I'm concerned. Uh, What became before the 60s and what came after is night and day, and most of it has to do with culture and basically the family unit, uh, all broken uh, by intent, by programming. Uh, by people in charge. But anyhow, that brings hour one of episode 157 to a close. I hope you'll join us all at the Free Speech Zone, which is crow777radio.com, 
where we don't have to say just count the ways we say whatever the hell we want because we're not harming anyone and we don't have to worry about censorship there. Also, please remember that Jason and I have a live show on Truth Frequency Radio called Crow 777 Live Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. There is a live chat room that you can sign up for for free. It's all free. And we have guests on and we have other shows uh, just between Jason and I. So there's all that. There it is, man. Cheers.